0: Now we have Chris Wilcox. I'll just start Um, I wanted to say a couple things before I get started. Uh, just to give you some context. So, I moved from, from California, where I did a bit of work with MPAs. I was trained as a terrestrial ecologist and sort of quantitative ecologist, so I do population modeling and spatial population dynamics. Moved to Australia and um, started working in terrestrial ecology there, and then moved more and more. Um, to work on marine systems, uh, I now lead a uh, group that works on um, marine ecosystems and pelagic fisheries. <clears throat> and a couple striking things about Australia that are worth worth knowing: it's um, it's only 25 million people, so in a way, it's a it's a, a sort of developing country that speaks English and has a first world education system. In that, we're primarily resource extractors. Almost all of what we sell are primary resources. The industry, increasingly with the, with the explosion of, of the Asian economies, industry in Australia is really sort of declining. And so you've got a well sort of educated, um, populist, quite a forward thinking government trying to work out how to exist in the shadow of huge industrial production that we clearly can't compete with. So, you know, we, we have lots of mining resources, we have lots of fishing resources, where the, the country is the size of North America, but has a marine zone that goes all the way around. So we have the biggest, the biggest national marine zone in the entire world. But there's very much a, an emphasis, being such a, a small country population-wise, there's very much an emphasis on how do you maintain a productive economy in the, in the context of, you know, sort of a shifting world. And so, in thinking think about MPAs in Australia, it's quite a different Quite a different inferences from here we don't basically have the surplus economic production to say oh you know we can just put a bunch of mpas in and if our commercial fisheries go out of existence you know, who really cares like they're not a huge part of the economy but there's a different perspective sort of all up um, there <clears throat> the other thing i'd like to so point out before we talk is um basically more or less there's no product property in the marine zone and the implications of that are there, there's not the sort of permanence of land conversion there is in the terrestrial zone. That's a major difference. And so really you're working with a completely different underlying structure about what you're trying to modify. You're trying to modify people's behavior in real time. And and I find as I've worked in this area more and more, I've become increasingly interested in, in human behavior. And probably if I had it to do over again, I would basically study human behavior because I think that at least in the marine zone. If you want to do conservation, that's the key. That's, that's where the game's at. Okay. So I worked in Hugh Possingham's lab. Um, he's one of the big players in uh, in, in sort of reserve design. And what I took away from that is basically, as far as reserve design goes, there's more or less a formula these days. It's reasonably straightforward. So you basically got to work out where the biodiversity is, decide what your objectives with respect to it are, figure out a way to like, optimally preserve that and then you need some systems for implementation. Now, <coughs> there's lots of both information and analytical challenges in there, but more or less we've got the formula. And I'd say that um, most of the issues that we want to think about, for instance, the long-term sustainability of a reserve, are really a sub-issue of, of this process. So, you know, is the government stable? Can you pick places where there are more stable governments? It, it really falls into that, into that whole structure. Success is a much, much more open topic and, you know, there's sort of three parts to it, I think. Uh, there's only three parts that I haven't talked about at least. So, a is dependent upon the objectives what are you after, and there's really sort of two objectives in the um, And then there's some substantive issues. Uh, the first one is stakeholder influence, and this is a real contrast, I think, with the terrestrial zone. In the Marine Zone, stakeholders sort of have a huge impact on how the process goes and what the outcome of this very nice formalized selection process is. And then the context of the reserve. The Marine Zone has a, I don't know if you'd say more dynamic than the Terrestrial Zone in terms of how the context shifts, but it's certainly very dynamic. Um, And then I want to talk a little bit bit about how you might manage this context and what what people are doing, or at least what I'm doing. So, history on Australia, um, we have a national ocean po- uh, policy um, that is sort of pushing towards a car system of reserves. <coughs> it, we're also, the emphasis is on marine zoning for multiple uses. So they recognize that there's gonna be economic uses, there's gonna be recreational uses, and the policy is designed to plan around all of that. Um, NSRMPA, National Systematic Representative, Marine, protected. Uh, so we've got this national program. Um, it's basically a commitment to car reserves, which, if you don't know what a car is, it basically says you're going to include everything, it's going to be representative of what's there, blah, blah, blah. You're going to make a good reserve. We've got a national commitment to be achieved by 2012, and bizarrely enough, it seems like they're, they might hit it. They're getting close. Uh, it's a nationwide program, large regional MPA process. Um, and the first one is in completion. So what I want to point out to you, when I talk about the large regional from an Australian perspective, the first MPA would go from Florida to New York. Right. I mean, we're talking the So here's the, here's the first MPA. The initial proposal, I started scoping this thing out in 2004, initial proposal, they were going to lose $11 million um, to fishery, uh, fisheries catch. They've re- sort of jigged the boundaries and stuff. Doesn't look like there's going to be much loss now multiple use, there's 13 reserves, uh, 200,000 square kilometers. So if you imagine Tasmania, how big is Tasmania? Half the size of California. So that reserve is half the size of California, quarter of the size of California. So we're talking like big, big chunks. And there's a really serious commitment to it. So now let's talk about where, what's actually in that reserve once you get it. So here's a, this is a depth map, so you can see uh, as it gets darker blue, it's deeper. Most of those reserves are in the abyssal plain, which, for those who don't know, the abyssal plain is it's like less than 1,500 meters, no light, there's nothing. But this is not very much down there. <clears throat> so, Cyro did an analysis. We were not really involved in this process. We we're an independent scientific agency, much like USGS, but we do sort of everything. Um, <clears throat> we weren't involved in this, but we were asked to submit the comments. So this graph shows you where the human impacts are. Um, Light blue to dark blue is depth. And here's what's in this region, and here's what's in the reserves. And the important point is what's happening right up here. You can see there's a lot more light blue there than there is there. And basically all the biodiversity and all the threats are in this shallow zone. the, the reserves are fundamentally empty. Okay. So we, we went back and took a bunch of data and reanalyzed and said, okay, how could you extend these reserves without having a huge impact and sort of accommodate some biodiversity actually landing these things? I won't bother to tell you what the GIS layers are, but just take my word for it, things in color are important. <laughs> the things to take away from this, the red dotted line shows you where the reserves should be extended. This is the Nelson reserve that was over one point, it's about six thousand square kilometers. The red dot line shows you where it should be extended. The gray hashing shows you where the long gas leases are. The, the bright blue here shows you trawler activity. So they're basically trawling kind of just off the shelf or at the edge of the shelf. And the and gas leases go right across the thing. And you can kind of, if you look at the, the solid red line down here, you can see it kind of goes right up the long gas lease and then goes left. So clearly, stakeholders are having a big impact on how these reserves are structured. And really, the the key message to come out of this is if if you can't work out how to shift the stakeholders' desires, you're stuck. You're stuck. You're going to end up with big reserves full of nothing. So that's a bit about stakeholders. Now I want to talk about context. This is the Big Creek green protected area that I'm going to talk about. It's not always interesting, sort of early ones, it was voluntary, set up by the local fishermen, in agreement with the University of California, which sort of owns some terrestrial land in the area. There's <coughs> a near shore rockfish fishery, which, you know, it's not a huge fishery, but it is important to the people in it. It's right? uh, set up for both conservation and fishery purposes, so they're trying to basically enhance the local fishery. And in the end, they got larger fish in the reserves, so and basically stopped fishing when they were river fairly reasonable. But um, this is the real issue. So for small reserves, if fishermen come and fish at the edge of it, it can basically negate the value of the reserve. And there's some evidence to show that. Um, This is the number of citations in a two-year period at Point Lobos, which is sort of up close to Monterey. And the essential geography to know about this region is the two main ports for fishing are Monterey and Morro Bay, hence their own map. And Big Creek is sort of isolated halfway in between. OK, so we went and looked at, do fishermen fish along the edge of the reserve? And we know there's big fish in the reserve. And here's what the data shows you. So here is north edge of the reserve, south edge of the reserve, uh, on, the, on the boundary and away from the boundary. And basically, there's no, there's no pattern. If anything, they're fishing further away from the boundary. But basically, there's no pattern. So it doesn't seem like to aggregate the aggregate edge of the reserve but, what's the future? I think this is going to be the key for a lot of these marine reserve processes. First you have to navigate the stakeholders. And then you have to manage the context. So this is about context. So, we, we do a bunch of fishing data, eight fishing areas between one and one Bay, And we analyze that data. And here's, here's what's in the graphs. So, the bars show you uh, the relative uh, weight of landings from fishing vessels. So by looking at a vessel's history against its biggest landing ever, so it tells you, you know, what the trend is, correcting for all the best In the gray is the amount of fishing effort. And what you can see is, basically, the bars are going down, the catches are going down, fishing effort is going up. And just trust me that there's a whole lot of data in those top two slots and the same patterns there. And so, more or less, you know, they're exhausting these areas. So, in all likelihood, they're going that way. So here's a sort of prediction for future context of the reserve. So I took all the vessel trips and scored each trip against the last trip and said, did they go further or did they go less far in comparison to what they did last time. Here's where the fishery really takes off. The top bars show you increasing trip distance, uh, same trip distance, decreasing trip distance. And it's pretty clear, basically. The uh, increasing trip distance is increasing, so people are going further and further. They're basically moving into this less exploited region. I'm you. So that's what it says. You know, they're going to get there eventually, and that edge effect, is, you know, may well happen if you don't manage it. Okay. So some uh, sort of off-the-cuff half-baked claims about things I don't know like anything about. Like not anthropologists, but these are my guesses. Uh, Extracted users are politically powerful. And they're going to win. This is especially clear in Australia. You, know, you go up against oil and gas, and they, you know, they just roll right over you. They're not interested. They've got lots of, of ongoing money, and, and really in a place, and this will be true for development companies, I suspect, too, that you know, the jobs are irreplaceable. So they've got political power addition additional money. Um, Extracted users don't seem to care about their impacts. And <coughs> there's lots of reasons and really the reason is relevant. I mean, it's useful in sort of changing the, the motivation of them, or the sort of structure of the motivations, but why they care is really irrelevant. And then finally, I end with um, valuations. There's a huge project to value marine resources in Australia right now, and, and they want to value biodiversity. But ultimately, if you think about how the government approaches it. They say, oil and gas, hard currency. Marine resources, 10 times the value, not hard currency. And so, you're just never going to convince a politician, or it's going to be very challenging, at least in that context, um, with a contingent valuation. Okay, so how do you operate these clients? And I would suggest there's really there are two things that are, that are important to think about. One is thinking about integrating MKAs with other management. So, in I'll show you, we have separate, man, separate agencies that manage biodiversity and fisheries, and you have somewhat similar structure here. And fisheries are increasingly moving to spatial management as a proxy for ecosystem-based management. And biodiversity conservation is basically as it's seen in the fisheries world at the moment, is a subset of ecosystem-based management. So there's a context that you can insert MPAs into. <coughs> Second is, it's worth thinking about how to change the incentives for these people and their, and their decisions. So for instance, if you, if you say to the oil and gas, hey, we'll give you a fixed area of a reserve that you can operate in. If you're good guys, we'll let you have a new fixed area in the future as soon as you're done with that fixed area. Basically incentivizing them to participate in the process. And then it's all about negotiating what they're willing to do. And you might even think about um, sort of bonds in this, in this context for like you know, appropriate behavior. Fishery similarly, you, know, you can control when and where they go. So if you can draw them into the process in that context instead of putting up hard boundaries, you might have a lot more success. So now I want to talk about what's going to be the second MPA region. So this is uh, most of Australia. And the green, the bright green there is the fishery I work in. It's the since June. So For about $70 million, they've got some real management problems. They have a local depletion of swordfish. And by local, I mean sort of the equivalent of a four state area but in it mm-hmm. So it's a big hole in the swordfish population they've made by fishing. Uh, There's bycatch of seabirds and sea turtles, and those are real conservation concerns. <coughs> uh, it's managed by allocation of effort. So, just for those who are not familiar with fisheries, you can control how many hooks people are putting in the water, basically. And they've got a system where they say, depending on where you put your hook, we're going to decrement your allocation of effort in a differential way. So, if you put your hook somewhere we don't want we're going to charge of four hooks to that hook. Um, so, in order to make this all work and to be able to control the spatial distribution of uh, fishing, um, there's a few things you need to think about. Where do fishermen go? Uh, what would an MPA in a particular place cost them? So basically, what would exclude them from the cost them? And how do you modify their preferences? So, this is some work I actually did for the fisheries management agency to help them structure their thinking. And so I'm going to present what is basically at a very rudimentary level and then on so where the where the work is actually at. But you can think of writing a utility for a utility function to predict where they might go. So a simple proxy for utility is the, the value of a place to them is equal to <coughs> basically how much money they're going to take out of it and how much it costs them to take that take that money out of it. Okay. So then by building a map from this utility, you can work out where they're going to go. And you can get this sort of data, it's not that hard with a few assumptions, so the cost of getting somewhere is basically a function of the distance to that place. And the value is more or less the price of the fish times the catch per unit effort of fishing in that place, right? So, symbols, but there's nothing very complicated. And that's just the difference, how much of the cost you get there versus how much you get from going there. So here's here's the sort of catch per unit effort map from historic fishing data of that's one of the main target species. And here's sort of the cost of going to a place and the constraints on where you can go for um, a 25-meter boat. fishing So from those two things, you can make basically a map of the utility in the absence of a closure for the places that boat can go. And then you can look and say, well, if I put an MPA in, so I basically block off this last bit of their fishing grounds, How does their utility change? And and that's basically a prediction of where they'll go. Now, the problem is this is a bit oversimplified. In the absence of their depletion of the stock or a vessel competition, you're basically predicting where one boat will go in isolation. And I'll leave you with this. This is sort of what we're actually doing now, is we're trying to deal with a dynamic game where fishermen are playing against each other. And price is endogenously determined so the price in the market depends upon who's landed the fish and when they landed the fish and how many fish. And so what you get is you know fluctuating availability of fish on time. This is the price trajectory through time. And you can see it has you know all kinds of patterns in it based on you know what strategies different vessels are adopting and who else is doing what strategy and the exact time and things. So to end, um, I think it's really important to think about this stuff not from a research scientist's perspective, but almost from an anthropological perspective. Identifying people's incentives and how those are structured is really what is going to determine how the game plays out. So putting MPAs in the context of fisheries management makes a lot of sense, because they're actually dealing with a much broader problem. They're the ones that are controlling the context, really. Um, Incentives represent a promising alternative. One of the big advantages of thinking about this stuff from the perspective of incentives is you allow these people to innovate. So if you say to oil and gas, rather than exclude you from some place, you guys put up a bond, and if you can run an oil and gas well for 20 years without having any impact, we'll let you go explore somewhere else. We won't take your bond, you can keep on going. You just got to clean up where you were. You know, that basically incentivizes them to act responsibly and to innovate, to come up with ways not to pollute it and to clean up the thing you know, as long as you keep that structure on <coughs> uh, Economic instruments may play, play a role. And I mentioned bonds and things. And those haven't come into the MPA discussion very much. But, you know, these are real tools that all these stakeholders are familiar with. They're just familiar with them in a different context. Um, and finally, thinking about uh, flexible management of sort of human spatial impacts, which is really what we're talking about. There's, there's real information costs. So you don't just go set the MPA down. This is sort of an ongoing thing that you have to collect data on. You have to look at how people are reallocating themselves. And, and you're basically gonna be involved in dynamic management of it. You know, so we actually have a website where we tell, we tell fishermen where the overlap of two fisheries are on a weekly basis. And they're expected to go check that website and change their fishing practices based on the maps on their website. And they're penalized quite seriously. If their BMS says that they went out of the zones that they're in given the permits they have. So it's quite possible to do this stuff on a dynamic basis, but it's a different way to think about the problem and you're talking about sort of, you know, real investment and integration between management and science, which hasn't been a sort of historic permit. So with that, if you want to read about my research or concept please.